is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Twins, Ray and Roy, were born in Williamsburg, Ohio, on March 31, 1900, to Paul and Belle D'Autremont. There was an older brother already, Vern, and Paul, the patriarch, worked as a barber. Another boy, this one named Hugh, was born four years later in Arkansas. Half a year after Hugh popped out, Paul packed the family up and moved to Cripple Creek, Colorado. It was there Belle gave birth for the last time to a fifth boy named Lee. Bell and Paul fought constantly, with the intensity increasing as financial pressure mounted on the family, which was barely scraping by. Paul had somewhere read a brochure about rich farmland available to purchase in Lakewood, New Mexico. Paul moved the family to their plot of land and a future of stability and prosperity, a distance of 500-plus miles, by walking while a horsey pulled a covered wagon containing their possessions. When they arrived at the plot of land Paul had purchased sight unseen before trekking all the way to New Mexico, Uh they found a parched desert landscape, which did eventually yield a crop after a season of punishing labor as well as conflicts with local cattlemen that stole from their water supply. A crop that was then purchased under market value by one of the area's big-time crop buyers. After this failure, Paul D'Autremont walked away from his family, literally, and went back to Colorado on foot. After Paul's departure, Belle ran a general goods store to keep herself and the children fed, but they simply could not make it on her meager salary. Thrilled to be doing it, I'm sure, Belle packed the family and their belongings back into the wagon and walked back to her shitty, shitty husband in Colorado. Oh my God, he just took off and left them to fend for themselves and she went back? Well, it was only, what, 500 miles? Yeah. Yeah, on foot. (laughs) It's fine. And love. Wow. Did you happen to look up how long that would take for, I mean, obviously it'd be more difficult with a family and wagon, but ballpark? There's got to be a website for what, that. what can you do, about 20 miles a day? Yeah, if I would you're say really... it'd be like 30 miles maybe. I mean, 30 days, and 25 was on days. Foot really on foot or with horses? Yeah, I think they just had the, the horse pulling the wagon. And I think, I don't know why, but for some reason, I think the wagon was not accommodating to people as well. Mm, just just pro- Probably trailer. could just take what they had and couldn't, wow. couldn't pull more than that, so. Belle and Paul remained together for two years before their fighting reached the same peak it had before. So once again, Belle packed up the family and their belongings back into the wagon and walked away from her shitty, shitty husband, returning to New Mexico. Months later, Paul too returned to New Mexico to reconcile with Belle. (laughs) When their fighting resumed once more, this time it was twins Ray and Roy, now 16, who left home, finding work in Oklahoma. Ray D'Autremont was arrested for the first time because he was a card-carrying member of the IWW, or Industrial Workers of the World, an international labor union. On November 11, 1919, celebrating the one-year anniversary of the truce ending the First World War, an Armistice Day parade in Centralia, Washington, 90 miles north of Portland, 
erupted in violence when shots were exchanged between IWW and American Legion members, which resulted in multiple injuries and six deaths. I covered that in one of our Patreon episodes. You sure did. Part of your welcome, too, on Patreon. I'm like, uh, this sounds really familiar. (laughs) Uh, It was a fascinating case, and you should go over to our Patreon and check it out. Person who's listening to us? (laughs) After the Centralia tragedy, as it came to be known, the state of Washington decided to scoop up anyone carrying an IWW member card. Vancouver, Washington police were checking a hotel door-to-door for IWW members, or Wobblies as they're sometimes called, and found Ray Diatremont, who was promptly arrested after stating he was a proud member of the organization. The one year plus Ray spent incarcerated would have been much more brief had he not tried to escape one day through the jail's kitchen door. He and another man who'd run were recaptured within a few minutes, and Ray was sentenced to one year at the State Reformatory of Monroe, Washington. Nothing's more devastating than trying to escape and only getting away with it for a few minutes. Yeah. It's like, you did technically do it, I guess, yeah. (laughs) Here's another sentence. (laughs) Yeah, I would imagine that some sort of, I can't even imagine what the violation is that they would be arrested for, but how could that have been more than like a couple of months? For fleeing? No, no, before, before, the thing that got him in there. Oh, yeah, the car. I I mean, I guess guess he was 19 at the time, and we've all done, we all did some 19-year-old things. (laughs) They maybe held him there for a while before trial or something, Mm -hmm. you know, just because he had the card and you couldn't really sentence him for all that much. Who knows? He was released from custody on May 12th, 1921. Over time after his release, Ray convinced Roy that the world was against them and that only a big score could break them from their life of poverty, hunger, and displacement. During his time at the State Reformatory, Ray heard stories of big-time criminals in Chicago, and sometime after his release, he rode the rails there, hoping to connect with professionals from which he would learn how to rob a bank. His trip was a bust, though, as he could not locate any of those he'd heard of, and he returned to Salem, Oregon, where Roy had moved to be closer to his twin during his incarceration. I love that he had big dreams of being a better criminal. Yeah. And I think, like, what often happens is that his time inside convinced him more and more that that was a, oh, absolutely. a, a, a viable lifestyle. And more networking. and Yeah. yeah. You meet all sorts of people in there. <laughs> and I'm always fascinated by siblings or family members that do it together. Such an interesting bond. We're going to do this thing that might get us killed or hurt, but we're super protective of each other. And if anyone did something to us, we would... Boy, is that right on the nose for my next case. Oh. And I think for these, uh, for Ray and Roy, it, it really is... Hmm, what's the word? Enhanced. That 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 feeling would be enhanced when you're a twin. I think. Oh, oh yeah, because yeah. they're they're basically an extension of you. I was reading a, a post a girl made about losing her twin, and it really is like a loss of identity. You don't know who you are without them. So they're having to relearn how to be a person. Wow. Interesting. Upon Ray's return from the Midwest, he contacted a cellmate from his time at the reformatory, a man with a plan to kick off the brother's life of crime. Their first target was a little bank in Yakult, Washington, a small town 85 miles north of Salem that at the time had a population of about 300. The twins arrived on July 2, 1922, but their co-robber never showed up. Regardless, they decided to go forward with the plan and spent the day watching the bank's comings and goings from a hide across the street while being pelted with rain. At 5.30 p.m., Ray and Roy decided to breach the bank, but before they were able to make their move, a Buick screeched up to the curb, and the brothers watched its occupants storm in, rob the bank, 
and flee, leaving the twins sitting in flat surprise, soaked to the bone. Was it the other person they were supposed to meet? Oh, I don't. I, you Ooh, know, it's fun so funny. Theory. It, they did, yeah, it didn't say, but I, I, or did it just happen to be a totally different bank robbery? It seems completely random. That yeah. guy's wow. like, that actually is a great idea. I'm just gonna do that myself no, with my other a, friends. Do you have a sense of how many bank robberies happened in this time? Was it far more common than it is now? I, I feel it was the kind of the end of that outlaw period of time. So, with cars becoming uh, accessible to everyone, I think mm. that 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 probably ramped it way back up because mm-hmm. people could get away faster. Defeated, they returned to Portland and the next day hopped a train 80 miles to Seaside, Oregon, where they imagined a bank robbery would be obscured by the following day's 4th of July festivities. Their second bank reconnaissance in as many days ended in abandonment when Ray and Roy saw that Seaside's police station was only a few doors away from their target, which was compounded when they realized a vehicle would be necessary to effectively flee the area, as they had no access to a car, and even if they had, Neither knew how to drive. I can rob a bank, but I can't drive. Also, they had guns, but no ammunition. Dejected and hungry, the young men walked south 24 miles to Cannon Beach, home of Haystack Rock, which was a clue on One-Eyed Willie's treasure map that Sean Aston and Corey Feldman squawked about in the Goonies. Here, the twins lowered their aspirations a bit, deciding to rob the shopkeeper of a candy store as they headed home after locking up for the day. With their sights on a new target, they watched the candy man from a ditch across the street, but failed to pounce on him when the time came, because they had both fallen asleep due to hunger <laughs> and fatigue from walking everywhere all the time. I like how juvenile it is, too. They're like, okay, we can't get the bank. Let's go for the candy it, store. They got to be billionaires. It does sound a lot like the ideas you come up with as a kid. Yeah. That are well, just they're not only, well thought out. And how old are they here? Like uh, 22. Oh, okay. Young and I think... Probably maybe didn't go to school and moved around constantly. And a very difficult childhood spent walking. And just surviving. Yeah. So, yeah, they're... Delayed. Delayed. The Diatremonts returned to Portland, soon after moving to Eugene, where Roy found work barbering and Ray cutting timber, saving their wages in preparation for their next stab at a life of crime. 19-year-old Hugh Diatremont, a fresh high school graduate and Ray and Roy's younger brother, joined them in Eugene during the summer of 1923, quickly becoming ensnared in a new robbery plan and intoxicated with outlaw fantasies of wild fortune and the dark celebrity he would experience on the other side of the crime. In September of 1923, the first domino fell when the twins lost their jobs. The lumber company for which they worked shuttered due to a strike, and they took it as a sign to enact their new, impossibly high-stakes robbery, that of a train, the gold special. Officially trained 13, the Gold Special was a mail car that during the gold mining boom of the 1800s transported large quantities of bullion from Oregon to San Francisco, where the mint was located. The train consisted of an engine car, the tender or coal car, a mail car, four baggage express cars, and three coaches for passengers. The twins and Hugh left Eugene and set up base in a Portland hotel room. With their savings in hand, they gathered supplies like camping gear, an automatic shotgun, and ammunition for their pistols. Roy made the first two payments on a 1918 Nash touring car for their getaway. And for your mind's eye, 
the Nash looked like what you'd see the Untouchables enforcing Prohibition in, or Bonnie and Clyde being shot to death inside of. It's a cool car. So does that mean one of them learned how to drive? I think yes, by driving it off the lot. (laughs) Ray Diatremont believed he knew of the perfect, isolated spot to commit the train robbery. He had seen it once during a trip, possibly on foot, through southern Oregon to New Mexico. It was at the Siskiyou Summit, situated between the northern border of California and Ashland, Oregon, where Interstate 5 now runs. Roy and Ray and Hugh drove to Eugene and stayed with Paul, their itinerant father, for a few days. One day, maybe while teaching themselves to drive, they came across an empty construction site and returned late that night to steal blasting caps, a roll of blasting wire, dynamite, and a detonating device that looks like something out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. After gathering the rest of their needed supplies, the boys left in the Nash, lying to Paul that they were off on a hunting trip to Puget Sound in Washington. Instead, they drove south into the Siskiyou Mountains and moved into a dilapidated shack they found while scouring the area. Noting the routes of the many trains that rolled past them, they saw that every southbound train had to perform a brake check, a slow to a crawl, and a very brief full stop before taking the descent into California. This check took place at Tunnel 13, which would echo with calamity, gunfire, and death just a few days hence. The train cut through the northwest on the morning of October 11, 1923, its appearance like a behemoth rolling serpent, belching smoke and screaming its arrival from out of eyeshot. Heading out of Portland, the train stopped a few hours later in Ashland's train depot to switch over to another crew, which consisted of engineers Sidney Bates and fireman Marvin Sang, both from Dunsmuir, California, conductor C.O. Merritt, Ashland local Charles Coyle Johnson, the brakeman, Elvin Doherty of Reno, and Hugh Huffy of Parts Unknown in the mail car slash express baggage car, and an unnamed Iceman, whose job it was to keep fresh and cold the fish on board for sailing California. The Gold Special departed Ashland and soon approached the 3,100-foot, timber-constructed Tunnel 13. Sidney Bates engaged the brakes and slowed to a speed you could jog alongside with, five to six miles per hour. As it verged on the tunnel, Roy and Hugh Diatremont jumped from concealing bushes, ran after the train, and hoisted themselves up and onto the baggage car. As Roy gained purchase and lifted himself up, his pistol fell from wherever it was tucked, clattering across the tracks in the darkness. A darkness which they had all been swallowed up in, as the gold special rolled out of the sun and into the last living minutes for several of those aboard. Roy and baby brother Hugh moved quickly atop the length of the train, jumping down into the driver's compartment, surprising Sidney Bates and Marvin Sang, who were now looking down the barrel of Hugh's shotgun and being ordered to stop the train, which they did, with the train's front end poking out just a touch from the tunnel's southern portal. Ray was positioned in the tunnel, waiting to greet the train, as soon as his brothers had control of the engineer and brought the train to a complete stop inside the tunnel. This was a crucial part of their plan. Their brothers figured that the noise and concussive blast from the dynamite opening the mail car would be dampened if they detonated inside the tunnel. Ray stood in the dark, chain-smoking next to the detonating device they had stolen. Oh boy. <laughs> he placed the dynamite, several times more than was necessary, against the mail car's door. When the train had fully stopped, Elvin Doherty popped his head out of a window to see why it hadn't begun accelerating again, and when he did, Ray, in surprise, raised his shotgun and fired at the man, oh, missing him. Doherty ducked inside 
fastened the window, and locked the safe, which the brothers believed would contain at least $40,000. Hugh Huffy, in the rear of the mail car, cracked his door for a peek and could see two men pointing guns at Bates and Sang, who had their hands in the air. He shut the door as silently as he could and hunkered down for whatever was coming next. Roy left Hugh to help Ray prepare the dynamite and the detonator. C.O. Merritt, the conductor, and brakeman Coyle Johnson, concerned with the unusually lengthy stop, began moving toward the engine car. Then the world was boom and fire, shattered glass and smoke. The explosion in the tunnel had an effect the brothers hadn't anticipated. The fire had nowhere to burn but the train, which it did rapidly, its smoke-cutting visibility, stinging eyes, and punishing the lungs of all the souls aboard. At the detonation, the conductor turned back, but Coyle Johnson moved ahead, toward the mail car, lighting his path with the meager glow of a red lantern. Coyle reached Roy, who informed him that this was a robbery and he was in mortal peril. The brothers wanted the train moved out of the tunnel to give them a chance at actually committing the robbery, so Roy ordered Coyle Johnson to the engine car to tell Sidney Bates to get the gold special moving. Coyle and his lantern moved cautiously towards the engine. Ray and Hugh, near the front of the train, were startled by Johnson's sudden appearance. They drew and fired on him. Coyle fell to the ground. His last words, quote, That other fellow said to pull the thing ahead, before Hugh put him down with another shot. The train had been badly damaged in the explosion and was unable to move in any direction. Ray and Roy tried to get into the mail car, but it burned too hot to enter. Nothing had gone correctly, and they were absorbing that they had to flee with nothing, that they had killed for nothing. Elvin Doherty in the mail car became trapped, or was more likely killed when the dynamite was set off. A photo taken later of the crime scene shows Elvin's charred spinal column discovered amidst the rubble. In a panic and out of nowhere, Roy suddenly shot Marvin Sang in the head as he faced the tunnel walls with his hands overhead, dropping him dead to the ground. And Ray, realizing that engineer Sidney Bates had seen their faces, ordered Hugh to kill him, which the young man, only 19 at the time, did with a bullet to Bates' head. Quote, The coroner later determined that bullets went through the raised arms of the victims before striking their temples. 23-year-old Marvin Benjamin Sang was buried in his hometown of Dunsmuir, California. His parents, Dolly and Henry, his sister Emma, brother Milo, and Charlotte, his wife of less than a year, and their infant daughter, all outliving their beloved Marvin. Sidney Bates' wife was featured in the newspaper following the killings. Not to rage against those who took away her husband, but to show gratitude to her friends, family, and the brotherhood of locomotive engineers for supporting her through such an impossible time. Their support was no surprise, given Sidney's long tenure running that line. Coyle Johnson knew the dangers of his job, and the allure the loot on board would have for would-be thieves. Between his intimidating build and fiercely protective attitude, he had told many friends over drinks that if anything ever went down on his train, he would fight to the death. Which, according to the coroner, is exactly what he did. Marks on his hands and dirt on his clothes showed he had struggled with the robbers throughout the ordeal never giving up until he was executed. After getting married and moving his young family to California, mail clerk Elvin Doherty, his wife, and their son Raymond ended up settling in Ashland. When he was killed at just 34 years old, the memorial service was packed, not only with friends and family, but of people from around the area who wanted to give their condolences to the widow 
and her now fatherless five-year-old son. Roy, Ray, and Hugh fled into the mountains, leaving behind the backpacks they'd brought to carry their loot away. As they fled to the shack they'd called home in the days leading up to the robbery, they became turned around and lost their way, arguing in which direction they should head, before finally stumbling upon their lonely hideout. They stayed at the cabin for several days in an attempt to wait out the search planes overhead and the trackers scouring the area. When they ran low on food, Ray was chosen to make a try at traveling to Eugene, a distance of 180 miles, to retrieve their getaway car, the Nash, and return to the mountains to pick up his brothers. Ray hopped a train a short distance north to Medford, where he read bold newspaper headlines regarding the robbery and the murders of four at Tunnel 13, and saw his and his brother's faces on wanted posters plastered everywhere, offering a $14,000 reward for information leading to their capture. You know, this is such a mess. It really reminds me how we've spoken to experts and we've read stuff, how so often people only think about the act and they don't think about the follow-up or what happens after you start that. Yeah, they just need to reach the satisfaction. Yeah, they're like, okay, we're just going to blow up the train and it'll be fine and there's no need for any other plan and we'll just be, everything will be perfect. Realizing it would be impossible to reach Eugene without being spotted, he decided to return to the shack, but they were all badly in need of food. So instead, Ray took a job picking fruit on a farm at the edge of town. He worked a few days, long enough to buy some food for the three, and then slinked his way through Ashland and back to the mountains and his brothers. Roy and Hugh were thrilled at Ray's return, awash with relief that he had not been arrested. Ray informed them of the wanted posters he'd seen, and they all agreed it was time to pull up stakes. They left their shelter on the morning of October 29th and headed west for the coast, walking a great distance through the day and continuing all night, spotting campfires in the distance they knew to be surrounded by the posses tracking them. The weather had turned while they waited in the cabin, and snow had begun to fall on their shoulders. Their clothes offered no protection from the elements, and they were soon iced to the bone. The Diatremonts gave up their quest for the coast and instead headed south, crossing into California and through the first little town you'd come to, Hilt, before reaching the Klamath River, adjacent to Hornbrook, California, around midnight. They slept huddled around a small fire, and in the morning decided that it would lessen their probability of arrest if they split up. Aliases were chosen, and the cities they were each headed to listed, before the brothers shared a tearful goodbye, a pledge to write each other, and a promise to meet again on New Year's Day in five years at the largest YMCA in New York. Why why YMCA? Well, I think it was then it was it was just like a community center and club for healthful men. <laughs> and I think it was like a meeting place for people. It was like a, it wasn't just about athletics and stuff. It was like a social place. And I think you could stay there, like the song says. Oh yeah. You can hang out with all the guys or whatever. Young man. Hugh Diatremont stayed on the move, riding the rails through California, then Mexico, Arizona, Texas. Missouri, and Louisiana before reaching Chicago in April of 1924, six months after the failed robbery. He knew he couldn't hop trains forever and felt he'd come to a dead end until he saw a poster advertising a job opportunity, something that sent him far away from the relentless manhunt led by investigators from the Southern Pacific Railroad who wanted revenge. After splitting with his brothers, Roy made his way to Sacramento where he did fieldwork in a vineyard. Ray did piecemeal work here and there, 
always moving on when people started asking questions about his background. He saved his wages, moved to Detroit, and sent Roy money for train fare. Unwilling to wait for the New Year's in New York plan, Roy arrived in the Motor City in December. They both worked for a time before suddenly fleeing Detroit. The creeping feeling of being surveilled was amplified by living in a major city and became too much for the twins to bear. They hopped a train out of the city, planning to cross into Canada before realizing their faces would not get them past an international border, which was certain to be better staffed and completely aware of the Diatremont brothers. Now heading in the opposite direction, their goal was Ocracoke Island off the North Carolina coast, which Roy had heard of being used as a criminal hideout. But they were dissuaded from this plan after they floated the idea to a group of hobos waiting to hop the same train as they, and were informed that it would be difficult to get past police in West Virginia and North Carolina. With that plan now abandoned, Roy and Ray went to Sulphur Springs, Ohio, around 75 miles north of Columbus. There they took the aliases of Elmer and Clarence Goodwin and were employed in making railroad ties. One day, Ray, a.k.a. Elmer, mentioned he wanted to try growing a small amount of corn to his boss, who then introduced him to the man with the seed, Bill Sprouse, who invited Ray, as Elmer, to dinner at his home, where the twin situation became far more complex. It was there that Ray met Hazel, Bill Sprouse's 16-year-old daughter. Yikes! Among Bill's apparently nameless wife and their 10, yikes, children. Ray, as Elmer, began taking Hazel on walks around her family farm, falling in love. Soon, Elmer asked Bill Sprouse for his blessing to marry Hazel. Being that Hazel wasn't an adult, her mother said no problem and sent them across the Ohio River into Kentucky, where her age wouldn't be a problem. Yikes, Tucky! <laughs> well, I will say, at that time, there was not much for a woman to aspire to. That's that was pretty true. common for parents to do that. Yeah, that they're like, she's taken care of now, even though she's a child. Right. Yikes. <laughs> exactly. It was August 1925, and the couple was soon pregnant. Jackie Hugh Goodwin was born June 15th, 1926, in Pine Grove, Ohio. Ten months later, Roy, still going as Clarence, was devastated when he spotted an updated wanted poster plastered to a wall in town. The poster featured only the faces of Ray and Roy. Hugh had been captured. It was April 1927, and the twins felt their only option was to flee the States. But first, they needed money. They chose to stay in Ohio, working and saving until they had amassed $700 with which to fuel their escape. The new poster had caught the attention of a co-worker of the twins named Albert Collingsworth, who returned to the post office where he first eyed it. His vision was poor, but he was damn sure the faces in the photos matched those of the young Goodwin brothers. Collingsworth reported his findings to local police, who then reached out to their contacts at the U.S. Bureau of Investigation, which is now the FBI. The case was assigned to federal agent Edward Pomeroy, who journeyed to Ohio to surveil the men accused of being the astonishingly still-free Diatremonts, quickly sketching out a plot to round them up without firing a shot, he prayed. Roy was hard at work when an employee of the steel company he worked for told him he was needed in the personnel office. As he entered, he was surrounded by federal agents, each with a pistol trained on him. 
Roy refused to admit he was Roy, keeping up his Clarence Goodwin facade for two hours before he broke. Ray was spending the same day at home with his wife Hazel and baby Jackie Hugh. He had just laid down for a nap when there was a knock at the door. The suited man at the front step informed a shocked Hazel that Roy had been injured, minorly so, only cuts and bruises. The man offered to give a ride to a sleepy-headed, confused Ray, who gave Hazel a kiss on the cheek before climbing into a waiting car. The guns the men inside the car pulled on Ray as he sat gave him a measure of bitter relief. It had been a long run in the shadows. Yeah, what was that, like four, five yeah. years? Yeah, I think three and a half or four, yeah. Secured in the county jail, Ray also held to his fake identity. But hours of questioning and a presentation of the facts and evidence authorities had against him and Ray finally squashed his lies. Defeated, he softly admitted, I'm Ray Diatremont. Back in April 1924, the recruitment poster Hugh had seen in Chicago as the perfect opportunity to remain free turned out to be a fortunate masterstroke of criminality. The poster, I imagine featuring old Point and Uncle Sam, wanted him for the U.S. Army. Hugh entered the nearest recruitment office, gave his name as James C. Price from Texas, was enlisted, and quickly sent for basic training at Fort Sheridan in Illinois before sailing to the Presidio on California's coast with a last leg to the Philippine Islands and his station in Manila. Corporal Thomas Reynolds was working at Alcatraz Island, then a U.S. Army prison. He one day scanned a wanted poster, quickly realizing he knew the face of Hugh D'Autremont from the time Reynolds served in Manila. The U.S. Postal Service was soon contacted with his hot new lead, assigning Inspector Fred Smith to sail for Southeast Asia to confirm James C. Price from Texas's true identity as Hugh. Once in Manila, Inspector Smith used the play the men who would later catch Ray and Roy would use for their ultimate capture in Ohio. On February 11, 1927, Hugh, practicing at the base's firing range, was told to report to his commanding officer and was instead met with Postal Inspector Smith, who grilled him endlessly on his identity. Hugh finally wilted hours later, telling Smith he got his man, but that he was innocent of any murder, as were his brothers. I'm afraid he doesn't have a good argument with that. <laughs> it's like, who else would have done it on this railroad in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, and running doesn't exactly scream like, oh, I get that. Yeah, you thought you'd be pinned for this, so of course you would run. Hugh was extradited to the U.S., arriving in San Francisco on March 27, 1927, and held at Alcatraz before a return trip by train to Medford the following day. The twins would be captured two months later. Quote, in all, more than 2,583,000 wanted posters had been printed at a cost of approximately $9,911.06, which would now be worth just a little over $150,000. The brother's mom, Belle, had received word that her son had been apprehended and arrived in town four days before he and his new postal inspector friend. She was lucky in this journey that she didn't have to walk, as she was provided train fare to cover the distance from New Mexico. Bell then followed her son north to Medford to show support during his trial and to prove with her own eyes that her son was still alive. During her time there, she accepted the generous offer of a local family who insisted she stay with them, becoming close friends in the process. Ray and Roy were held in Steubenville, Ohio's Jefferson County Jail, where they agreed to Oregon extradition. Ray's spouse Hazel approached her man, the one she knew as Elmer Goodwin, 
as he was being led back to his cell. His only words to her were, Goodbye, Hazel. She whispered a goodbye, and then he was gone, locked behind a door. On June 15th, the twins, wearing sharp suits and hats, alongside their captors, began the five-day trip to Oregon, embarking to an audience of thousands packing the station. When a voice from the crowd wished the twins a nice trip, Roy responded, parodying the rogue's bravado of his idol, the infamous and revered Jesse James, a legend of the Old West myth and a total piece of shit. He said, quote, We wouldn't miss it for anything. Oregon's beautiful this time of year. Back in Medford, the sheriff handed Hugh a newspaper through his cell bars. Its headlines screamed about the capture of his older brothers. He said nothing to the looming lawman and simply placed the paper down beside him. Jury selection for Hugh D'Autremont's trial began on May 2, 1927. Charged with a myriad of crimes, he faced a death penalty for the lives taken at Tunnel 13. On the second day of jury selection, both sides reached an agreement on the 12 men comprising it after sifting through a pool of over 200 candidates. The two women in the running to serve on the first day had been dismissed on the second, because bros only, bro. Hugh's trial began on Wednesday, May 4th, at the Jacksonville Courthouse in Medford. The brothers' parents, Belle and Paul, were in attendance. They remained estranged throughout their son's time on the run. Paul had since remarried. The prosecution first called the conductor of the gold special, C.O. Merritt, who had most likely saved his own life by retreating after the explosion outside of the mail car. His testimony included a point after the chaos, when he discovered the bodies of engineer Sidney Bates and fireman Marvin Sang. Hugh Huffy, who was fired on by Ray during the robbery, testified that the thieves he'd seen that day matched both Hugh and his brothers in height, weight, and age. During a midday break on Friday, the third day, one of the jurors complained of feeling ill, but chose to finish out this day of service. It was after the break that Jackson County Coroner Dr. Holt took the stand and had to admit that he was unable to match the bullets pulled from the victims' bodies to the bullets dug out of the trees around the brothers' hideout shack, where they had been practicing with their guns in the lead-up to the crimes. When proceedings resumed on Monday, May 4th, the juror who became ill the previous Friday, S.W. Durham, had twice been attended to by a doctor over the Saturday-Sunday break. He disregarded his weakened state, and listened from the jury box as a representative from the Colt Gun Company testified that the secret serial number stamped inside every one of their firearms was connected to a purchase made by one of the brothers using an alias. During a recess after the witness had been released, juror Durham was taken to lay down on the couch in the judge's chambers. His condition had worsened, more so the next day, so he was evaluated by doctors who diagnosed him with a gallbladder infection. In an effort to avoid a mistrial, the judge postponed the trial for 10 days so Durham could recuperate. The man was allowed to go home to rest and heal, but instead he died two days later, at 63. A mistrial was declared, and Judge Thomas, presiding, declared that it wouldn't be so easy for Hugh to get away. He set a new trial, which began a month later. Evidence mounted quickly against Hugh. C.O. Merritt was called and retestified first. A man working the parking garage where the Diatremonts had stashed their car identified Hugh as its driver, and the salesman who sold the Nash to the brothers in Portland identified them and described the twins in accurate detail. There were many witnesses with the same type of confirming testimony, and suffice to say, the deck was not stacked in the young man's favor. Closing arguments took place over two days, concluding on June 21st. 
This was the same time Roy and Ray arrived from Ohio and were being arraigned, where both pled not guilty to the five indictments they each held, one for robbery and four for first-degree murder. Hughes' jury deliberated for only 30 minutes, returning a guilty verdict for the killings. Their only recommendation was that he be given life imprisonment in lieu of death by hanging. The next afternoon, all three brothers were joyously reunited. They sat and spoke to each other from adjacent cells for hours, discussing something privately, and by eight that evening, they had all decided to make full confessions regarding the murders of Marvin Sang, Elvin Doherty, Coyle Johnson, and Sidney Bates. Hugh waved his right to the scheduled sentencing hearing and stood before the judge, shoulder to shoulder with his brothers. He was sentenced first, to spend the rest of his life at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Ray and Roy were also sent there, to remain until their last breath. Roy filled his time in prison working as a barber. Hugh revived the institution's newspaper and later published its monthly magazine, Shadows. Ray taught Spanish and Latin to inmates and took up landscape painting, some of which he sold to the public. Roy, who had always struggled with his mental wellness, the stress and anxiety he felt during the first chapters of their flight had nearly crushed him, sank further and further into himself. Transferring from the cell he shared with Ray, becoming erratic and violent, often raving and placidly staring at the wall in equal measure. After an incident which took six guards to subdue, Roy was sent to the state mental institution, also conveniently located in Salem, where his conditions amplified and he would later receive a botched prefrontal lobotomy that left him in a partially vegetative state. He was paroled at age 82 and died the next year in a nursing home. At age 54, Hugh was released in November of 1958 by a unanimous Oregon parole board vote. With assistance from friends, he found housing and work in San Francisco as a printer. Four months later, he died of stomach cancer, a free man. Ray Diatremont was paroled 34 years after he first entered the penitentiary with his brothers. This was on October 27, 1961, and it was done so he could go trick-or-treating. Just kidding. <laughs> he was the only one left alive, and that life on the outside was a quiet one. Ray got a job as a custodian at the University of Oregon, attended the Faith Baptist Church, and taught Spanish to seniors at a nearby community center. In 1972, Oregon Governor Tom McCall commuted his two life sentences, and Ray was free until December 1984, when he died at 84 years old. And finally, a passage from Roy Diatremont's confession. Quote, I realize now that there is a different view of life than what I used to have, and Ray and Hugh are the same. We realize now that there are things in life infinitely more worthwhile than the struggle for gold and the ambition to get rich. But we realize now the value of human life and what it means to one. We can realize that there is more kindness and virtue in the world than there is unkindness and vice. I like those types of stories because kind of transports you to a different time, a different time of crime. But the buildup to becoming a train robber is so insane to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm guessing they're in jail, learning bits of information from people. And then you go from like zero to 60, like, let's board this train and then let's go on this life. This, we're running for our life for years. Meet someone, build a family to have it come crashing down. It's just so intense. Yeah. You can put a lot of it into today and say look at what a toxic 
home life and lack of education leaves for options for people, you know, because we're yeah. like, because they're just teenage boys that are just trying to figure out how to get through the day. And it's like, that's your baseline is like, well, we'll just go take it because that's what they know. You can be like, and this is why it's important to have healthy spaces for people and take care of mental health and education, just in general education, to feel like there's there is more than that. And social programs. Imagine yeah. if they had a something in their town where they could go spend their time as teens. Like a YMCA. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, but or the most a- impressive thing about all of that, that artist that did that uh, sketch, that must have been really good for that many people to be like, yeah, yeah. I know those guys. <laughs> oh, the wanted poster? Yeah. Oh, they were photos. Oh, they were oh, photos. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Okay. I don't know oh, if from I, being maybe arrested that. before. That yeah. changes everything. <laughs> so they had uh, they had both sat for photos at some point. Um, oh. I think um, one of them had a girlfriend or something when they first I ran see. or something so like that. So they were identified in by a witness, and then they went and found the photos. Is that what you think happened? Like, Let how did think. they know it was them? I mean, there were plenty of witnesses on the train. Oh, well, they, yeah, there was the train. Oh, yeah, there was all the witnesses on the, on the train. And then when they first... Um, when they first found the shack up in the mountains, they were then going to, um, uh, one of them was going to take the Nash to Eugene to store it at like their dad's place. But they, uh, on the way down the mountain, they hit a cow and had to take it to a garage and then it had to get fixed for like three days. <laughs> so, th- so those people in town knew them too. So, I mean, it was just sort of like, everyone's like, we know, everybody we know knew who them. it is. Yeah. But also yeah. I think it's pretty cool that that many people were willing to like go tattle. Yeah. They're all like, get these schmucks out of here. Like I'm just at the post office mailing something. I'm like, hey, that's my coworker. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go, I'm going to go turn them in. And that's, that is impressive too for the time for having so many wanted posters everywhere. Because yeah, like I've, states. like my case that I've been working on for forever from that time, like there, there wasn't, it's that same exact era. It's from the twenties, but there just wasn't that communication and it wasn't that shared thing so it feels like because they were so certain of who this was and they took out so many people that they were like we're not messing around we're putting these everywhere and it was it was federal too because it was a male yeah crime. oh so it was right a major, you know, were, oh yeah, yeah. male that's federal, why the federal aspect and the fact that it was just such so many murders yeah. yeah and that picture i mean i'm i'm sure we'll put it on our blog it's really jarring to of look at train? of of the person who was uh, basically yeah. obliterated oh, the, into a spinal column. That's it. Yeah. It literally is just like a a pile. Josh has shown me the pictures in the book, and it's just piles of metal. And then it's like this thing that's it's just a spine laying there. Like that's Jeez. what's left of them. It's really amazing that they didn't do more damage in the train in the tunnel. Like they could have collapsed the tunnel if they had done too much dynamite. They could have like. Yeah, I believe it was seven times the amount they oh they would have God. needed. And I think because I don't know if it was because the the explosion was contained, it probably made it more like the rifle of a of a or the barrel of a gun. Mm. And so that explosion and that concussion like wouldn't oh, have had, just it right. just didn't have anywhere to go. So it, yeah, I think it might oh, have. Oh yeah, it, have, it couldn't like expand outwards. Yeah, it might so have it crushed the, the mail car and made oh, it even. Yeah. You know, they couldn't get into it, and it was on a fire. Obviously, no one should kill anyone for anything, but it is there is something that does make it that much more salt in the wound but I they guess didn't even that there was nothing yeah. it. not right. to say like oh we'd be fine if they killed that many people no but for, even, for 50 even, grand even but they reflected on the fact that yeah, what, a, what a waste all of it was for naught and those lives uh just for nothing again Fargo all of it for a little just bit of money a little bit of money 
it's good though that in the hundred years since this happened, we've solved all the problems that kind of like can lead to those sorts of oh, things. Yes, there is no more crime and no more. <laughs> <laughs> we learned our lessons. Well, we don't have train robberies here Not like we true. used to. Not true. Not like we used to, but we still do. I read an article um, that in Los Angeles, there are like tons of train robberies now. Really? Of that what? I, that I believe have happened since uh, maybe in the, in the time of the pandemic. Is it robbing, robbing the people? No, no. It's robbing goods? freight trains. So they're oh, taking wow. basically everything. And, and one part of it was that they would... Um, whatever criminal organization, syndicate, whatever, would hire houseless people to uh, put up tents like near the train tracks. Oh, and so then they'd have to stop. the train stops or whatever and they just go bang, bang, bang and they, <gasps> they just cut the train open and steal everything. Wow. And so the trains get, get to their destination and are like, oh, all the bikes are gone. <laughs> Where's the rice aroni? With gas being what it is worldwide, I wonder if on a global scale that there's more, you know, you're transporting uh, oil and, and gasoline on trains and stuff. I wonder, you know, obviously I just watched rewatch breaking bad. So I'm picturing oh, yeah, like that the train big train scene. robbery. Spoiler. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not as complex, but uh, very lucrative for the people that are doing that. Yeah. And this was one, this was like one of the last old timey. I think so. Yeah. I think uh, maybe. And I think the guy before that that was super famous was uh, Roy Gardner, who was uh, uh, an idol of the, the brothers. Mm. They knew him. They knew his exploits. And they. Yeah. But it was it was at the tail end of that. Yeah. It was at the I mean, I don't know, with the advent of the uh, the, the automobile, it kind yeah. of like destroyed Changed that. It. Now you're an expert. We've got one just like a mile away. Let's go hop the rails. I always wanted to. Jump on a train. Matt and I were going to do that for a summer. Uh, yeah, I was obsessed with the adventures of Mad- Natty Yan. Oh, yeah. And Me I, too. I thought the epitome of cool was hopping a train. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I loved that movie when I was a child. It, that's I so bet funny. I would love it today. We I, should yeah. watch it. Meredith's... I had never heard of it. It came up on Always Be My Sisters. There was something about Natty Yan, the... and he was like, I love that, that movie. That movie was like, I don't know. It was everything to me. Like, it was such a good drama at the time. I had a huge crush on Meredith Salinger. She was very cute. Very cute. (laughs) And John Cusack was in it. And And it made train hopping alluring. Yeah, and having Wolf as a pet, Mm -hmm. obviously. (laughs) And wearing a little newsboy cap. (laughs) Very cute. Fingerless gloves. (laughs) Loved it. It was a A great movie. satchel on a stick. I don't know if there was any bindling going on. Oh, I love bindling. a bindle. <laughs> so that's it. See what he learned from his book? <laughs> hobos and their bindling. It was fun to read about hobos so much. <laughs> yeah, is hobo great. a technical term of like a train person? Uh, no, it's a, I can't I can't quite recall, but I believe there's more meaning to it. It's like cuz I know it's used uh in a bad way toward, you know, like, oh, a houseless person, like, oh, this hobo. Yeah, but it was more than that. Yeah, it's like um, specific. It's like, king. that's, I think. A migrant worker, too. You're like, mm, you travel to work. Yeah, yeah, the song King of the Road, right? That's, that's a, that's a hobo, I think. That's it. Goodbye. (laughs) I love trains. Paul had somewhere read a brochure about fertile farm, fertile farm here. <laughs> oh no! No, it went down. It's going to be a fart oh, later. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Better out Isn't than that in. Really, how it works? I th- would guess that some of it is. The I think, air has I think to some escape. of it's air that we swallow. Yeah. 
we should do that one day. Just swallow like a ton of do our own tests. Oh, actually, we'd probably put ourselves in the hospital if we just yeah. We'll drink a lot of soda. I'm sure it's been done. We could probably just look it up, guys. I don't really want to like oh on YouTube or explode my stomach. Look it up and not do it. Yeah, I like Josh's idea of doing it. It sounds like a fun group exercise. I don't want to be like that girl on 90 Day Fiance. What? What is that? This girl was a nutbag and she was a horrible girlfriend. And then because she was kind of famous, she sold farts in a jar. And then she went to the hospital (laughs) because in order to do it, she was like, I ate 10 pounds of beans and a bunch of soda or something. And then she like almost died. And they're like, yeah, your stomach is huge. Well, I could do that and make millions then because... I mean, that's just me natural, man. It's kind of fun to actually do it. Because then you have a whole other content of making videos of you doing it that you can put on like OnlyFans. Wow. I feel like you've thought this through. We have to monetize our farts (laughs) at some point. I'm sick of giving them away for free. They're just a waste. I feel like we interrupt Josh's cases the most. (laughs) It's because he he breathes. So I got to go fart in my jar. <laughs> you guys want to watch? <laughs> yeah, I fart into my muscle milk uh, container. Oh! Well, they're huge and empty. <laughs> and it goes, it makes like an echo sound. It's a very hollow, yeah, it's like hitting a <laughs> uh, <laughs> big drum. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Flagellant fanny. <gasps> Flatulent. That's what I meant. <laughs> Whoops, what did I say? Flagellant. <laughs> Which I think might be... Is that, that a it was word? Like, it was like, well, flagellate is something. It's like being whipped. I didn't even notice it was wrong until after you said something. I think I've always said it that way. What a loser. A small town, 85 Niles... Niles. <laughs> you did <it> again. Niles Morth. <laughs> Detective Nile, Niles Morth. I like that you said Salem. the name of the town right, and then... Fucked <laughs> <Niles>. up Niles. <laughs> I had all my focus on Yakult. <laughs> that is not easy. Fun fact, that's the home of Tanya Harding. Current? I think from. I think mm. she's from there. I shared a plane with her once. <gasps> she got a raw she deal. Got a real raw deal. Real raw deal. And their infant dollar. Dollar. <laughs> Between his intimidating beald. beald? <laughs> what a beald on that guy. To retrieve their getaway car. The Nash. Eh-eh. Eh. Claiming that they had run because he was innocent and believed. Ah! I got to change this word. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Gave his name as James C. Price from Texas. Ah! Which would now be worth over just. Ah! Ah! 34 years after he first entered. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>